We're in the middle of a series of 50 days on prayer, and we're talking about the importance and significance of prayer in the life of a believer. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Old Testament with me, to some verses in 1 Kings in the 18th chapter, 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to pick it up at verse 36. We're going to pick it up halfway through a little story, and uh, we'll get to that. But um, join with me there at verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the author writes, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are burning their hearts, uh, bringing their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and, and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal and don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, eat and drink for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elisha climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look forward toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant came and reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Dwight L. Moody was one of the most influential evangelists in history. A predecessor to Billy Graham, who most of us know, Moody traveled the world, often preaching to crowds of over 30,000 people in the days before there was any such thing as a public address system. Dwight was the seventh of nine children. His father died when he was four years of age, leaving his mother to struggle to put food on their table. At 17, he was pushed out of the farm, if you will, one less mouth to feed. And with his fifth grade education, he went to the city of Boston and began to work in his uncle's shoe store. There he came to faith under the tutelage of a Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball. 
Moody soon moved to Chicago and set up a shoe business and was very successful. He became involved in the Chicago YMCA, becoming its president. He established the Illinois Street Church and became its pastor. In 1871, the Chicago fire started. While he was preaching, it destroyed his church, his home, and the local YMCA. And it became the turning point in his life. He became an evangelist. He toured the country and led numerous crusades, not only in the United States, but in England and in Scotland and in Ireland. In his lifetime, he addressed over 100 million people and millions came to accept Jesus Christ as their savior. He established the Chicago Bible School, which you and I know today as the Moody Bible Institute, an organization that has trained more missionaries for the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other institution in the entire world. And while the fruitfulness of his ministry is undeniable, his methodology was never particularly creative or innovative or even what some people would say all that impressive. Today we have seen thousands, even tens of thousands of people come through new evangelism tools and techniques like the Jesus film or through the Alpha course or through billboards or through television campaigns. But Moody's ministry, it lacked all such uniqueness and creativeness. His entire evangelism strategy was narrowed down to one thing, to prayer. That was it. It is an undeniable biblical theme that prayer gives birth to new life. One classic example is our text for this morning. It is the life and the ministry of the prophet Elijah. So let's think about this process for just a moment. The process often begins with fire. There was a cycle, you see, that Israel was going through that repeated itself over and over and over again. It started with Israel would forget God. They would decide to do life their way. And then they would find themselves, because they did it their way, in hard times, in being oppressed. And they would cry out. That is, they would pray to the Lord, their God, out of their desperation. And God, in his grace and his mercy, would step in and would save them. And then they would be faithful, at least for a little time. And then the process would start all over again, and it would repeat over and over in Elijah's day, they are following King Ahab and Jezebel into idol worship. And as a result, times are tough. They're being oppressed. And all of a sudden, Elijah comes and he confronts Ahab with this wonderful idea. He says, what if I and the prophets of Baal have, a, have an altar duel? They can have their altar over here to the God of Baal, and I'll have my altar over here to Yahweh, and we'll see what God blesses. We'll spend some time in prayer together, and then we'll see which God can send fire from heaven 
to consume the, the sacrifice that we have laid on those altars. And that God, whichever God sends fire, that will be the one, the true God. And Ahab accepts the challenge. So the prophets of Baal went first. They set up their offering, and then they prayed, and they prayed with great passion. Hmm, nothing. And so they shouted all the more, and they began to chant. Nothing. They started cutting themselves and abusing themselves, hoping that it might appease their God. Nothing. And then it was Elijah's turn. So the first thing in the text that Elijah does is he rebuilds the altar of the Lord because it had been torn down. And then with the bull on the altar, he has people go down with four large jars and fill them with water and they poured it over the sacrifice. And then he did it again, four more jars poured it over the sacrifice. And then he did it one more time. 12 jars of water. Now that's important because Israel was in the midst of a three-year drought. It had not rained in the land for three years. Water was a precious resource. It's always a precious resource in Israel, but especially in this time of drought. We need it for crops. We need it to drink. Water was costly. It was a lavish offering that Elijah brings before the Lord. Elijah is bringing his reputation because it's on the line. He is literally bringing his life because if this doesn't go so well, it might mean his life. And he is bringing this wonderful offering of 12 large jars of water that he's presenting to the Lord in worship. And then Elijah prays. And the scripture says, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil and the water. And the people proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is God. Now imagine just for a moment being able to witness that manifestation of God's power followed by this amazing and almost instant transformation in the lives of these once hostile idol worshipers into people that are face down before the Lord God. The fire gets their attention and they respond. But sadly, it didn't last. In Jesus' day, when Jesus came, the people were also oppressed. The leadership, you see, had wandered from worshiping God, and they rejected God's only son when he arrived on the scene, and they nailed him to a cross and crucified him. And then in Acts 1, Jesus' disciples come together to pray in a room. In Acts 2, we read that the fire fell from heaven, again in answer to the prayers of God's people as they, quote, saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that came and separated and rested on each one of them. And the scripture tells us that 3,000 people came to faith that day, proclaimed 
Jesus is Lord. And the church was born. But that was just the beginning. You see, the truth is, God's dream, his vision is not for a church on fire. Not for a church that's just excited about signs and wonders that God might be able to do. Not a church that is focused on what God can do for them. The fire, the fire is just the beginning. So now jump with me for just a moment to the end of the story. You see, God longs for a church and he longs for a people who have been reborn. For a people who have been transformed for a people who have a lasting, ongoing, continuous, deep relationship with him. So Ahab is in a rather perilous situation. The economy, because of the drought, has collapsed around him. His people are starving, literally. The populace is not happy with their political leaders. On the other hand, King Ahab and Jezebel are still eating pretty well. They have a huge storehouse with lots to eat and lots to drink. And so Elijah tells King Ahab to go and, well, to go and feast because God is about to provide him with a reason for feasting, a reason to celebrate. God will provide the sustenance that is necessary for his people. He's about to bring new life to a dry and barren earth. And so Elijah goes to pray on Mount Carmel. He asks his servant to look toward the, toward the west, toward the sea. See any clouds? Nothing. Seven times Elijah sends his servant to look. Six times the servant comes back and says, nothing. On the seventh time, catch the biblical numbers here, on the seventh time, he sees a cloud about the size of a man's fist. That's pretty small. But now after three years of drought, there is a massive downpour of rain. A celebration ensues among the people. New life begins to come. And this it's the climax of Elijah's story. You see, God's vision is for more than a church that is on fire. God's dream is for a people that are reborn, for a relationship that has been restored, for a people that are redeemed. God doesn't dream about new programs or larger buildings or long membership roles. God longs for new life to be poured out through his spirit on all people. God longs to be in a relationship with people that he has created. God longs for his creation, for every square inch, Abraham Carper would say, of his creation to be under his lordship. God longs for his people to be faithful. Now, every journey begins with an origin and every journey begins with a destination. The destination here is a world where every knee bows and where every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. But in order for us to get to that destination, we need to take this journey. There needs to be a process. There needs to be 
a way to put these two things together. And that has to be taken very, very seriously. You see, in the middle of this story between the fire and the new life that the rain brings, Elijah walks up to a mountain of prayer. Between the origin and the destination, there is a mountain to be climbed. And so Elijah sends King Ahab off to get ready for the rain. And he climbs up and begins to pray. And looking over the land, Elijah bent to the ground and put his face between his knees. That is a really interesting, a really strange posture for prayer. I mean, we pray prostrate in submission. We kneel in humility. We stand in praise. We sit for lengthy prayer because it's more comfortable. Jesus, we know from the scripture, loved to go up in the early morning and to pray on the mountaintops, perhaps because he could see God come in the, in the sun rising and in the in the new day. But Elijah bends to the ground and puts his face between his legs. Now, whenever something seems a little strange or a little odd in the scripture, a little out of the ordinary, that's an invitation to sort of lean in. It's an invitation to pay attention. It's an invitation that there's something going on here that we ought to note. You see, there are no unimportant details in the scripture. They are there for a purpose. And I find it interesting in this particular text that all we read is God sent this fire. We don't read any details. He doesn't go on and on about it. But now we get to praying and he tells us the exact posture that Elijah was in. So what's going on? Well, to pray for God's people, Elijah metaphorically gets into the position of a woman in labor preparing to give birth. I know it's kind of graphic, but it's a picture that the author wants us to see very clearly. Even in James in the New Testament, when he refers to this particular passage, even James talks about it as earnest prayer. The author wants us to know that Elijah is engaged in the kind of prayer that is designed to give new life. A few weeks ago, in a message I mentioned D.L. Moody, and I mentioned he carried around a list of 100 names. I mentioned that he would pray for each of those names daily that they might come to know Jesus Christ, and at his death, 96 of those 100 people had already affirmed Jesus as their Savior. And I'd say that's not bad, 96%. Wow. The four remaining people were at his funeral, and independently from each other, every one of those four at Moody's funeral gave their life to Jesus Christ. 100 out of 100 on his list. How does a shoe salesman with a fifth-grade education become one of the most influential evangelists in history. Prayer. And the story is inspiring. 
if you knew that by praying for specific people and for their salvation every single day until the day that you die would result in 100% of them coming to know Jesus Christ, who would you be praying for? So some years ago, after hearing that very inspiring story, I started a modest list. I started with 10. 10 people that I would pray for on a daily basis. And then in my next sermon series on prayer, I challenged the church, the congregation I was serving, to pray along with me. I had little cards that were distributed called Top 10, just 10 blanks, numbered 1 through 10, and said, let's pray together. Let's pray every day. Let's watch what God will do. People were inspired. They took the cards. The Bible begins, the very beginning of the Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and it was empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word formless in that second verse comes from the Hebrew tohu, T-O-H-U, tohu, which in the Hebrew is usually translated as barren, as barren. So it would be better to read it as, now the earth was barren and empty. That is, the earth was without life. And then creation happens, and in creation, the Spirit of God comes and brings new life into a barren place. God's original creation in the first chapter of Genesis is explained through the imagery of childbirth. Then after the fall, when God stepped in to, to start to redeem the world, he started with a barren womb. Sarah's, Abraham's. And then when God entered the world, personally, he came through childbirth. The angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Just like the Holy Spirit came upon the world in creation. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Luke 1. This same spirit hovers over another womb on his last night. Jesus describes his impending death. He talks about how he's going to spend three days in the tomb and about a resurrection. And he does that in the words of childbirth. John 16, Jesus says, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Jesus promises to fill all who will receive, who will receive him with new life from his spirit. The same spirit that birthed creation. The same spirit that brought new life to Sarah and to Abraham. The same spirit that brought life through an incarnation and the same spirit that brought new life through a resurrection. 
And Jesus promises his creating and his recreating spirit to everyone. He says in John 7, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive, end quote. Now that phrase in that text, within them, comes from the Greek koiola. It means womb. Jesus says, if we believe in him, rivers of living water will come forth from our womb. That is to say, our prayers will bring God's spirit to create new life through us. The undeniable biblical teaching is this. There is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. There is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. God loves to answer our prayers for new life, for salvation. It begins with a church on fire. It ends with the people that are reborn, with people born into new life. But the journey from one to the other goes to the mountain of prayer. Birthing prayer, that is praying for new life, is an integral part of the slow work of God. You'll note in the text, Elijah prayed for fire once. Boom, there was fire. He prayed for rain seven times. And only then, the seventh time, did he see a small cloud begin on the horizon. God works slowly. It was centuries, millennium, between his first promise to send a Savior into the world to redeem us and the time that the Savior actually arrived. (laughs) That's slow. So it's understandable that the prayer that brings life would also be a prayer that comes slowly. We all know people who have been praying for a child or a parent or a spouse And nothing seems to happen. And then maybe seven weeks, maybe seven months, maybe seven years, maybe 70 years later, there's a little cloud. There's a little answer that begins on the horizon. There's a little ray of hope that God is at work drawing that person slowly and continuously to him. And meanwhile, we pray and we pray. And we pray. Sometimes new birth comes after hours of labor, like our first son did, born at a very convenient time for a pastor on a Monday afternoon. Sometimes new birth arrives after long, arduous labor into the wee hours of a Sunday morning, like our last son. You see, when they come, they don't come on our timetable. They don't come on our schedule. They come when they're ready. With all the pain and all the discomfort that a mother goes through in bearing this child, Jesus writes, when a child is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into this world. 
When the baby is placed in the mother's arms, the one who has caused all that excruciating pain and the one who comes with an absolute guarantee to be completely dependent on them for years to come, she rejoices. The result of the new life is worth the pain, worth the labor. The new life is worth whatever anguish was necessary to get there. Birthing new life requires laboring in prayer. And the joy of the resulting salvation of the new birth far outweighs the pain and the struggle and the necessary persistence that God invites us to in prayer. Now, birthing prayer is the unglamorous work of the church. I mean, calling down fire, that would be wonderful. That is sensational. It draws attention. People get excited. They're immediately interested. But praying, including praying for rain, which, which by the way, brought the new life to the land. We're invited to do that in secret, out of the limelight, without fanfare, on a mountain. Elijah prays alone, save for his servant. It is his labor of prayer that we are called to imitate, not the signs and the wonders. And yet even the most resolute will struggle. Even the disciples that were invited by Jesus to pray for a couple of hours while Jesus was in, was in prayer fell asleep, couldn't sustain it. Most even like the disciples, we prefer the fire part. In fact, on one occasion, you may recall, the disciples wanted to duplicate the fire part. When the disciples, James and John, and others had been mistreated by the Samaritans, James and John said, Lord, what do you think about we could call down fire on them? Wouldn't that be cool? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. No. It is the secret, unglamorous praying of Elijah that we are called to imitate. James says, when he refers to this, it is the prayer of a righteous person that is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being just like us, he writes. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And then again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. We have an appetite for the spectacular. God has an appetite for new life. We can't resist a public spectacle. God can't resist the secret prayer for new life. Everyone wants to watch the fire fall. We want revival. We want signs. We want wonders. We love amazing, moving testimonies. We Celebrate marvelous, miraculous transformations. Prayer. Prayer is not very glamorous. But James says it's powerful and it's effective. Sadly, few people, even mature believers, are interested in laboring in secret, 
slow, persistent, lifelong prayer. So three months later, I asked my congregation, I said, how many of you are still praying for at least one of those people that you committed to praying for every single day? Please raise your hand. No hands. No hands. In a sea of committed, well-meaning, sincere followers of Jesus Christ, not one hand, not even mine. I have missed a number of days. Now, that doesn't make us failures. That makes us normal. It makes us human. The success rate in praying for the lost seems pretty low. The absence of ready, clear fruit diminishes our passion for praying. Any inspiration that we might get from a story like Moody quickly wears off and dissipates. But being normal, being normal doesn't change anything, doesn't bring new life, doesn't bring transformation. If you and I want results, then we have to put in the time and we have to put in the effort. And birthing prayer is partnering in the slow work of God. God is never in a hurry, but God is never late. God wants a fire in his, in this church, because he wants people to be reborn. God is delighted by the passion of our worship. Remember Elijah rebuilt the altar? God is honored by our costly sacrifice. Elijah poured 12 cisterns of water. Anytime we hear the word 12, we think about the 12 tribes and about the 12 disciples, that is the people of God. He poured that over, over an altar in a, in a drought. God accepts our worship and he accepts our sacrifice and he provides the fire because he ultimately longs for his people to experience a new and renewed life that comes by joining his spirit on the mountain of praying. Birthing prayer requires persistence single-mindedness, and an acquired taste for the routine and the ordinary. We need to pray through the waiting. We need to pray through the pain because it's prayer that births new life. So I'm going to invite you to join with me in praying five blessings for five people for five minutes a day, for five days a week, for five days, five times five. And then do it again and again and again. So as you leave during this time of uh, 50 days of prayer, the elders who have been standing by the door have been handing you a bookmark. I'm going to invite them to hand you a little business card as well. And you can take a look at it and you can pray about it. And I'm hoping that God will lead you in your prayer to put in at least one or two and maybe up to five names that you commit to pray for their new life, for their being reborn. Every move of God, every revival, 
Every awakening in history follows this same pattern. The church catches fire. Prayer increases. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And lives change. J. Edwin Orr. He said, whenever God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them to praying. Charles Spurgeon, one of history's greatest preachers, was frequently asked, what is the secret of your success? And he pointed to the intercessors that prayed nonstop every time he preached. The church he preached in, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, had a small room that was built directly under the pulpit where people would gather to pray. He called it his boiler room. Once asked for his preaching tips, he offered only one. God has a soft spot for the unglamorous, secret, slow work of prayer. In other words, there is the kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. A slow, persistent, unglamorous, unspectacular, if you will, praying that often involves labor pains. While he was in England, every place he preached, people were coming to faith through the teaching of D.L. Moody. And some people found those Results absolutely amazing because they understood he had only a fifth grade education. A biblical scholar and a moody skeptic, R.W. Dale, went to investigate. He sat through one of Moody's revival meetings and he observed what was happening. And afterwards, R.W. approached D.L., the best preachers are known by their initials, apparently. And he said, Moody, I've seen your mission. And I have come to this conclusion. It is of God. I tell you why. Because I see absolutely no possible relationship between you and the results you are achieving. Therefore, it must be God. Now, to some, they might have found that to be insulting, but Moody found it as an affirmation of the Spirit's work in his life. And I've wondered, I've wondered if anybody has ever said anything similar about me. And I ask, has anybody ever said something similar about you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the invitation to pray for new life, to join with you, to partner in the slow work that you're doing, to turn this world right side up, to bring people to faith through your spirit, to bring new life that lasts and lasts, and lasts. So Father, may your spirit move through this place, through our hearts, through our lives, calling us to that kind of prayer, which changes 
everything. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.